Welcome to the No Plateau Podcast. For stroke and brain injury survivors, their caregivers, and the therapists helping them to break boundaries in their recovery journey. Hosted by Henry Hoffman, a certified occupational and clinical therapist, and Pete Duran, a certified podcast host. CPH, look it up. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the No Plateau Podcast. I'm Pete Durand along with my co-host, Henry Hoffman. Henry, welcome to the program. Hey, good morning, Pete. How are you? Good. And we're honored to have Jerry Goldstein with us on, on the podcast. Jerry is uh, an accomplished author, caregiver, and uh, very knowledgeable in all things stroke and stroke recovery. So we're going to get, I think, a lot of different perspectives from Jerry today. So I think kind of clinical, kind of caregiving, compassion, and your book about how you talked with your dad after his stroke and the conversations you had. And I'll let you describe it. I thought it was fascinating. I've never seen anything quite like it. So um, welcome, Jerry. Thanks. Hey, nice to be here. And thank you for taking the time to have me on the uh, on the podcast. I love the name of the podcast, No Plateau. Well, thank you. It's kind of Henry's mantra. So we, we incorporated the name of the podcast and we're excited to be doing this. So Jerry, to set the stage, kind of share quickly what happened to your dad and, and then what prompted you to write the book? And then we'll let Henry dive in. Well, in 2012, dad had a stroke out of the blue and he was perfectly healthy in terms of, you know, mental capabilities, very physically active. And uh, I get a call at 1030 at night that dad had a stroke. So we didn't know at that time what kind of stroke, but it turned out to be an ischemic stroke, left brain, right side affected, and his right arm was affected, but mostly it was the aphasia. And his aphasia was the biggest thing that he had to overcome, except for his right arm that never quite came back. So that was a big thing that he had to work on every day. How old was your dad when he had a stroke? 84 going on 85. Oh, well. And was he pretty healthy up until that point? Yeah, I mean, pretty healthy. I mean, he had his regular health problems. I mean, he had a heart problem. He had uh, renal problems, kidney problems, you know, so he had other things that were going on, but he was pretty healthy and, uh, and very active and, uh, even had a, a, a new girlfriend after mom passed. So she was a major incentive for him to get well. Was that Jerry approved? So it's a Jerry approved girlfriend. It was totally Jerry approved because uh, even though he was afraid to tell me about it, you know, but I would yeah. call him and he would never be home. <laughs> even at but, 88 or 85. Yeah. Yeah. But she, but she was a friend, like a 35 year friend, she and her husband. So they just, you know, started playing bridge together, went out with all their same friends together. And so it was a, she was positive, upbeat, and a real support, and was with him, thankfully, when he had the stroke. Well, if your dad was playing bridge, he's pretty sharp, right? That's not, uh, my, my parents tried to teach my wife and I bridge probably 30 years ago, right after we got married. This is how I described it to my parents. I said, this is maybe what you guys did back in the day, but I want to play euchre and just drink beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, bridge is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a great game. My parents still play to this day. So let's go back. Your dad's clearly, he's got game because he's got a girlfriend. He's got game, yeah. <laughs> and he's sharp. After the stroke, between his girlfriend and you, how did you approach this initial phase of the discussion? I mean, this was shocking. He came out of it. What, what were those first conversations like? Well, the first conversations were shocking to me because he was using words like um, plus, plus one, plus two. But I was always baby. <laughs> I was always, you know, he always called me baby and he never used my name for all my life, you know. So I was really glad that I was still baby. But his, okay. his initial aphasia situation was that he, he substituted numbers for names of anyone and anything. So everybody had a number except me because he was a numbers guy. So it was really interesting. And this was part of what I paid attention to. Right from the start, I paid attention to how interesting his ability to, and his desire to make himself known, understood, was paramount in his in his way of communicating. This was intentional. Like he came up with this number system. I don't know if it was... You know, if he thought, oh, well, let me substitute this, I think it just came out. At the beginning, it just came out. But because he was so numbers oriented, that was the part I'm thinking is the part of his brain that allowed him to communicate. Sorry for interrupting, Jerry. I was going to say, treating a lot of uh, patients over the years with aphasia, and I don't know um, if this happened to your dad as well, uh, but usually, Two things that are super easy for them is vulgar language. Yeah. <laughs> that comes out no problem for frustrated patients. Interesting. I don't, I don't know yeah. if that's the case. We'll find out in a minute. And singing simple songs. Interesting. Uh, happy birthday songs. Um, perhaps that wasn't the case for your dad? No. No, because yeah. my dad wasn't a music person. That wasn't part of his thing. And he was not vulgar ever. Yeah. Some of them were never either. <laughs> During the healing process, he was never vulgar. You know, he, he was frustrated and he would cry and he would be emotional, but he would yeah. never curse. And he was all, that's why I think he endeared himself to all the nursing staff and doctors sure. because he was kind the entire time. Yeah. And Pete, if I may, I just want to take a step back to please do prop this up correctly. Can you give us, Jerry, a little bit of background about your dad? Obviously, think about two things. One is um, if you can explain a little bit more about what he did and what was life like for your dad. And then same as I'd like to know a little bit more about you so the audience knows about you. But also, what was life like the day before the stroke? I know you mentioned a girl was in his life, right? A young gal. But what was life like the day before? And in general, a little bit more information and background about your dad, his job. Okay. What was his specialty? Stuff like that. Okay, well, he was an electrical engineer in New York, part of the uh, union in New York City. He did major projects, was like the foreman on major projects like rebuilding JFK Airport, <laughs> the World Trade Center, their job, you know, they did the electrical, uh, Madison Square Garden, and the Empire State Building Radio Tower. He was a problem solver. And he was, uh, like I said, a numbers guy. He had spreadsheets for everything. And he would not let something go 
if it had not been solved. And so that carried through during his recovery from his stroke simply because he wanted to solve those missing pieces of his life and his situation. So he was persistent, stubborn, but persistent in most of those situations. So he had that, you know, his stroke, I don't think, even though he couldn't speak at the beginning, he could fill in. But when he came to questions or specifics, he would substitute the numbers. He would substitute a word that he was fixated on. He never lost complete communication. So I think that that might be why he was so able to come back over the course of time with the proper his uh, speech therapy, the diligence that he used to work every single day, five, six, seven hours a day on his problem solving or his homework, as he would call it. Well, once you mentioned engineer, Jerry, uh, if I had another OT on this call with me, they would be nodding their head up and down. You'll be shocked how many engineers we've treated. Really? That suffered a stroke. Wow. Obviously, nothing's been studied about that, but- That's amazing. I'm sure blood pressure may or may not have been an issue, but for some reason, okay, a lot of people who work very long hours, very analytical, yep, oftentimes seated, right, doing work, those are- uh, hints uh, of a potential issue. Interesting. You know, of course, there's doctors that suffer stroke as well, but engineers seems to be, for some reason, one of the big ones as far as professions. Wow. I don't like this, Harry, because I'm an engineer and I sit on my butt mostly all day long and do this. Yeah. And by the <laughs> way, you working out that little 45 minute burst of working out will not help, Pete. You know, there's studies, not to digress, Jerry, there's studies for occupational hazards, a sitting disease, if you will. If you oh, sit sure. at your desk for yeah. six hours and uh, is equivalent to smoking um, two packs of cigarettes a day. And so if you just go do a 30-minute workout, that's not going to offset that six hours of sitting. Wow. So a lot of people have high-load tables now. A lot of people are taking their breaks with their little Google reminders or Apple Watch reminders. Mm -hmm. Lifestyle and occupation has changed over the years as far as health. I'm standing up now. And so hopefully it's helpful. You should stand up. <laughs> I've got my sit stand desk. I'm raising it right now. There you go. There you go. I love that visual. I think there's something to that for sure. And the science science shows that. But not to digress. And Jerry, you know, he's a math guy, your dad, right? Uh, he was a math guy. So what he loved about math is there was always, uh, you solved the problem. And and it sounds like that's what he was trying to do with his recovery. Now, Now, what about you, Jerry? Tell us a little bit about you and your background. So I've been in uh, music business entertainment for like 40 years. I was uh, a booking agent and an artist manager for 20 years, booking tours around the world for acoustic music musicians. I was a road manager. I did all of the logistics. And so that's why I felt like being part of this process that I was perfectly trained for all the negotiations. Oh, what a cool gig. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all of the ability to negotiate with doctors and staff and, and dad, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, dad, <laughs> that was a lot of negotiating with him. So that kind of prepped me. And then I had given up being a booking agent and a manager. And then I wrote a book for the music for musicians to be able to do that for themselves. And so that was like a 20, that's been out there for 28 years 
uh, and musicians all around the world have used that. Music business schools have used that book as a textbook. Then I started coaching musicians. Then I started doing online courses for musicians and performing artists. And now I'm still coaching artists and others in various industries because it's kind of all the same thing, you know, business techniques and mental ability to plan and think and strategically see what's in front of you. I use some of those techniques with dad to help him. I'll definitely want to get into that in a minute, but thanks for giving that background just to understand you and your dad a little bit more. Now let's talk about the few weeks post-stroke. So by the time he went through his acute hospital stay, and we'll, we'll fast forward a little bit just for the sake of time, and then he went on to rehab. And in rehab, I'm sure he had occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech. What were his lingering deficits besides speech and cognition? Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. We'll dive into that. What was his leg and hand like? Well, his, his right leg got to be fine pretty quickly. You know, it was just a little bit affected. But his right arm and his hand was affected and remained affected throughout the rest of his life. And that's actually how I came to you guys is because one of the therapists, I think it was the occupational therapist, we said, well, is there something that can help his hand? And she recommended Sabo Stretch, the hand brace. So we got that and he was using it vigilantly every day for whatever the recommended time was. And it was like part of his routine to put it on. And then he did other physical exercises that were dexterous, like picking up blocks and moving pieces of puzzles around, got large size puzzles that he could pick up and move around and put together. With his affected side. Yes. With his affected side. Yes. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Because you of all people, Jerry, your background as a, a development coach for artists, and let's use musicians. We've I've referenced musicians a lot of times when we talk about neuroplasticity. And for the audience, neuroplasticity is when you uh, can reorganize your brain based on behavior. And we can reorganize that positively or negatively based on what we do. Either whether we have a traumatic event in our life, we can have PTSD, and that's negative neuroplasticity or depression, or OCD, or if we have a positive thing happen in our life, or if we learn a new skill, such as playing the piano, Jerry, we can rewire our brain to do something with that, or, or singing, right? So my question for you is, prior to your dad suffering a stroke, how would you rate your understanding of neuroplasticity from zero to 10? And then following your dad suffering a stroke for a couple of years, how would you rate your uh, understanding of neuroplasticity from zero to 10? I would say that I was probably at like a four based on how I had to use a lot of skills and rethinking methods with my musicians to get their, to change their mindset on how they thought about their careers and how they valued themselves and how they changed their things that they did each day. So I never applied those terms. I never thought of it in that way. I would use mindset as the word or the term. But then after that, it's like I read every book I can get my hand on for stroke recovery, stroke, every person that had a stroke and wrote about it. I wrote, read all of those books, read therapy books and 
that's where I came upon the, the term plateau, where many of the, to us, our occupational therapist actually said to us, well, your dad's reached a plateau. And I thought, no, I think you've just run out of your bag of tricks. And you know what's crazy is that's my line forever. And as I've evolved, there's a communication gap. And the therapist may think the patient has permanently reached a plateau. Right. Or the therapist may be thinking that the patient has reached a temporary plateau. We don't know the answer to that one. But in life, we do have temporary plateaus. Just think about your, your musicians. If you're playing the piano and suddenly I'm just stuck, right. you're going to then go to you. The, your, your, your client's going to go to you for editing, right? Right. And you're going to break through that, that mini plateau or temporary plateau. But you're right. That is a big problem because there's a lot of therapists and health professionals who think there's a permanent plateau that was right. occurred. And that's not the case. We've had patients say, sorry to the health professional. I did not plateau. You plateaued me. So we're 100% on the same page with that. Let me get some free advice from you because I don't think I've interviewed a musical or expert who's been around in the biz for a while. And I reference this to my clients as a way to think about neuroplasticity when I talk about if you're going to improve, whether it's aphasia, walking, hand function, you got to put the repetitions in. You know, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, I use those references. Michael Phelps, I've used that reference. But I never use a musical reference. So let me, let me get your information here so we can use this in the future. If you were bringing on a new musician who wants to learn how to play an instrument, right. and we know what neuroplasticity means, and we know we have to put the time in, what is the recommended amount of time per day? How many hours? How many minutes that's, that one should practice the instrument to become better? Now, there's average, and then there's excellent. Right. Can you, from your experience, kind of... Give us some basic reference there so we can use that and relate that to stroke survivors and their recovery. Okay, so I'm going to change the reference point simply because I don't teach music, right? I teach right. musicians how to do their business. Yep, but you've been around it long enough probably, right? But more musicians, each of them have their, you know, there's some musicians that will play hours and hours and hours to practice. And then there's other thinking that you play for half an hour, you work on something, you take a break, and then you come back to it or something else and you take a break. But for over the course of a day, you might work on something for multiple hours, but you don't necessarily burn yourself out. So in terms of the people that I work with who are trying to change their way of working, on something, I generally try to get them to find the time of day that they have their highest energy level so that they function or they, they do the thing that is the hardest during that time of day that their energy level is the most available to them. And then they take a break. I usually work in like 90 minute spurts and then go for a walk, take the dog out, you know, eat just whatever. So I function on energy and I worked with dad in that same way because I could see that he would get drained or tired and I would change it up to do something fun or to do something completely contradictory to what he had just been doing. You know, if he's working with his hands, then I would do something mental. If he was working with uh, mental, then we would do something physical. 
Jerry, are you sure you're not a licensed occupational therapist? <laughs> uh, and this is just for three years. <laughs> yeah. Sadly, and I am an OT, many in my profession actually don't do the problem-solving strategies you're actually employing when you did it with your dad. What I didn't hear you say is you can become a very good musician doing this twice a week. Practice. It's pretty much daily, isn't it? It's every day, multiple times, many times a day. And that's why when musicians, I don't know any of musicians that I know of that are great that did it very small time. You know, they're working at it all the time. 10,000 hours. Every day, every day. With our clients, our stroke survivors and therapists, we do have a problem. We do have the group, the small percentage that do exactly what performers do and they give it their all every day. We have a majority of the uh, clients who will do a few times per week. Part of that is motivation, compliance, not seeing the progress. You know, with a musician, you're going to see some progress. With a stroke survivor, if your hand is still tight as a drum, right, and it's week after week, you're going to naturally lose that motivation. But then the reason is, why is it still tight as a drum? Are they getting good advice from a health professional? Do they know the latest strategies so they can see the progress? So that's where it gets really messy with our delivery model, because we don't know if it's really the patient's fault or if it's really the healthcare delivery model fault. And did they really get good advice? With musician, it's pretty darn easy. Here's the instrument. Here's what you need to do to improve. And by the way, both hands work. Go improve. And you're going to see that. And there's no, and, and the accountability is pretty clear. It's up to the musician. When it comes to a patient who's a stroke survivor, where's the accountability? Sometimes it's not the patient's fault, right? I would say almost all the time, it's not the patient's fault. It is the fact that if you're going to see a therapist three times a week, or if you're in the hospital and you have three hours during the day of a 24-hour period, and you have physical therapy, speech therapy, and occupational therapy during those three hours, what happens the 21 hours that are left? I mean, okay, you got the eight hours of sleeping, hopefully. What happens the rest of the time? And so what we saw, what I saw was that it's about the advocacy and it's about the support system that surrounds the patient. So if the family members are saying, well, you had physical therapy, now it's time for you to sleep and I'm going to go do something else. So there is a commitment level that maybe a lot of people cannot do to help the patient do the recovery, put the time in, or have an aid that is able to do that recovery and put the time in. It's also the enthusiasm with which the patient comes to the process. You know, so if the patient is dependent on everybody else to do everything else for them, and they don't take ownership of the recovery process. And so that's why I made it a part of our process that dad took ownership of how he wanted to recover, what was important to him, and how are we going to work on the things that were important to him as opposed to me just saying, come on, you got to do that with the brace today. Come on, do you know, like he was committed. And early on, I saw that as being a major part of the recovery was having him be enthusiastic, excited, and driven 
motivated from what he decided was important for him. Well, just a couple more before Pete jumps back in. From a improvement standpoint, so he suffered a stroke. He was 84, right? Right. Unfortunately, he did pass away at 88. Right. During his recovery process, did you see improvement or did you see it mostly as an adaptive strategies that really became better, but no neuroplastic changes or improvement in his speech? Can you share a little bit more information on that? Totally improved. I mean, his over the course of the early weeks, his speech, his ability to tell time, his ability to recognize cards. I mean, I walked around with a deck of cards. I mean, because I knew that that bridge was an important piece of his social life. So it was imperative that he get back to that so he could be by the fall. So he had a stroke in the fall of 2012. By the next fall, he was playing bridge. That's amazing. Because we worked at it every day, multiple times a day. Well, the reason why I bring that up, Jerry, is I even yesterday I got a comment one of my platforms I was discussing compensatory strategies to avoid as much compensatory strategies as possible and force them to challenge their impaired, in this case, their impaired limb. If you exercise the good limb too much and you ignore the impaired side too much, it's actually detrimental to cortical uh, reorganization and cortical health. And the one therapist said, yeah, I understand that, but you know, there's, there's patients out there that are just severely impaired. And is there even room for progress or should we at least, in that case, just settle for compensatory techniques? And my attitude was it's, you never settle for compensatory techniques. Neuroplasticity doesn't discriminate whether you're severe or mildly affected. You should definitely go gangbusters with whatever you have and utilize that. And it sounds like your dad's a perfect example from the aphasia standpoint. From the aphasia standpoint, also from the right hand standpoint, because we never let it go. We never, you know, we never said, well, it's never going to come back. I mean, even though it didn't come back to the point that he wanted it to, he still was able to start to pick up puzzle pieces, start to move things around. And it was imperative that he work it every day in conjunction with working the left hand because he was a righty. So he had to work on his left hand processes also because it was hard to pick up a pen. It was hard to write. It was, you know, we had to work that and work the right hand to see if it would come back. And so he was motivated to have the right hand come back, but he was motivated to have the left hand work better, <laughs> you know, so that he could do things. There was a gender study done. Oh yeah. On non-dominant side affected. So in other words, they looked at female stroke survivors and male stroke survivors. Yeah. And they looked at only ones where their non-dominant hand was impaired. And they looked at motivation. They looked at motivation. Guess who was more motivated to get their non-dominant hand back? Women or men? Females. Yeah, that's exactly right. Men didn't care. They had their right hand in this case. And they were super happy with that. But female, boy, oh boy, it didn't matter. They wanted that hand back no matter what side it was. So for example, household things, which I don't want to say be, be gender specific, but many of the women are you know cooking and doing that stuff. But you know, my dad did ironing, he did cleaning, he'd wash the dishes for his whole life. He wanted, those were some of his goals, to be able to bring those things back. And you needed two hands also to be able to be in his 
wheelchair or use a walker, which he never could use because he only had the one hand <laughs> to to motivate the movement and he would just go in circles. <laughs> but we played with that. You know, we, we tried it. We, we had fun with some of those things because it wasn't all depressing stuff. We just made sure that it was fun. But from those capabilities and his motivation came these amazing conversations to make himself learn, solve problems, recapture life events, and recapture the ability to talk about stuff, you know, to talk about his life or and get questions answered. So that's where I want to understand what inspired the book, right? So what about these conversations? At what point did you realize I need to be writing some of this down or or recording it or or retaining it for future use? Because I, I didn't you know, the, the background as an engineer, the math thinking, the fact that right away he started assigning numbers to people is fascinating to me. Yeah. So how did this all evolve into a book and how did you figure out how to arrange it? I mean, so Stroke was in November of 2012. I was there with him until June. And then I went home to Virginia for a couple of months. And it was when I was home in Virginia that I was remembering all these conversations. I mean, and I have a really good memory for that kind of stuff. So I remembered, you know, words and who said what and all the details. And I thought, I got to write this down because this was really fascinating to me. So I just began in that November of 2013. I just started organizing and and I'm I'm a marketer so the first thing I actually did was make a list of who would get this book and how will I market the book before I even wrote a word again but then I started writing the stories I had you know 13 stories that I had remembered that were conversations and I just wrote them down little by little and I had the titles of the stories so that and then over the course of time I started capturing recapturing talking to the people who were involved with those stories so that I can get the specifics of what actually happened and that you know took me a couple of years to gather some of that stuff because stuff was happening during his uh, recovery and then different conversations happened at different times so that there were more problems to solve now he was more adept about his life and wanted to solve interesting new problems that were not just how to say something or an occurrence that happened but he was diving back into his memories about something happened at some place what was it? <laughs> you know, and so that's when we started to dig deeper into his life experiences to reacquaint him with special occasions in his life. Jerry, could you maybe share with the listeners a short example of, of what one of the stories would entail? What would qualify as a story that would be part of the book? Okay, so very early on, I think this one was a funny one. Early on, he was in the numbers phase. And so all of a sudden, at, and so the stroke happened four days after the 2012 election. So there were things that had been going on that were not yet solved that he didn't know about now. So his conversation started one, two. Okay, that can go anywhere. 
where is that going to go? What are we going to talk about here? One, two, what, Dad? You know, and and we would go on and on, you know, one, two, what? One, two people, one, two things. And and interestingly, as conversations happened, I learned things. So one of the things I learned very early on from that, you can't ask multiple questions in the same sentence. And that was like an immediate learning process. Like one, two, what? One, two people, one, two men, one, two women. You can't do that. It was like one, two, what, dad? Was it one, two, was it, are we talking about women? That's the end of that question. Are we talking about men? That's the end of that question. Because he couldn't separate items in a list to answer what's he talking about. So that conversation would go on like 21,000 questions of what are we talking about until we finally ended up with, he wanted to know who won the congressional race of that year's election. And it had not been decided yet because one of the guys was still wanted to count the votes. So because it hadn't been solved every time, and even though he knew who we were talking about, he couldn't remember their names. So the next person that would walk in the room, it would be again, one, two, because that's what he knew, one, two. And so even though the people were baffled, <laughs> one, two, what? And they would have to go through the whole thing. We could at least catch them up on, you know, if we knew, now we know what we're talking about. You mentioned that he couldn't remember the both candidates' names. No. Was that something that came back, his memory? Or was it a communication issue? I, I think I've got it here, but I can't figure out how to say it. No, that was a, he couldn't remember their names. Okay. I mean, and we went through that with names in general. Got it. Names were really hard for him to remember, which is why he replaced them with numbers. Numbers. Interesting. So that was one of those things that was his his deficit. I mean, he was never really great with names, but... This was a major problem throughout the time where he would have a conversation with people and he would ask about somebody, but he couldn't remember their name. So the conversation, instead of finding out the answer to this question, was spent most of the time figuring out who we talking about. Jerry, did you utilize, there's a bunch of technology. Now, again, 2012 to 2016. Yeah, I don't know whether it was still is, available, is, right? It was a while ago. Yeah. But not too long ago, did he end up using any type of communication boards, whether it's Lingraphica or Toby or all the different ones out there where he could generate sentences or yes nodes and not he he just didn't want to do that or you were unaware of those technologies? Unaware of it, you know, didn't know it about it and and whether it was available, we weren't suggested to use that, you know. Okay. But similarly, one of the things that we did do is my niece made up what you're talking about, a communication board, sort of, with a couple of pictures like brush, toothbrush. Right. Just to make it a little bit easier. Yeah. So he could then learn how to say those things and have the picture of what that meant, you know, because the, the biggest part of the disconnection was, okay, you could say the word brush, but what the heck is a brush? He didn't know what those things were. So the connection part. So my niece made up these little uh, sheets that had pictures with the words, you know, and that's why I use flashcards to A is for Apple and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And and so we used 
playing cards, flashcards. These were the things that I knew of. Nobody, you know, told me about it. And, and I guess one of the things that was, you know, interesting to me is that I was so busy and I'm sure that so many other caregivers were so busy maintaining the day to day that I would have thought that a speech therapist, aside from doing the homework that he that they did give to dad, would have maybe mentioned some of these other opportunities, tools, but nobody really did. The aides that we had were there for, you know, physical comfort, help showering, personal needs. They were not qualified therapists that had access to or knew about these various things until we had one of our aides who really knew technologically how to use an iPad and how to download certain apps. So we started using some brain training apps to help dad, you know, play games and have visual connectivity, you know, hand-eye coordination. But, you know, if there were tools out there, I didn't know about them, you know, and I didn't get informed about them. I would have used them. <laughs> sure. By the way, that's a separate discussion, which is the frustration many care partners find and caregivers find is that someone's used a tool. Yeah. But how do I find out about it? How do I know about it? Where is this? Where is this information passed along between therapists and other people in the community? So describe his ability to, to hold a long conversation with you or someone else, knowing the frustration that this brings to someone who could play bridge, solve problems, communicate really well. Was he able to get comfortable with the amount of time? I'm assuming that also had to do with how you treated the situation too, Jerry, right? Did you de-escalate and know it's okay, I'm going to be patient? So describe that for us. That was the biggest thing at the beginning. My sister, who was visiting then at the very start, we had a lot of patience for this. We knew time didn't matter. It's going to take as long as it's going to take to get to the answer to whatever his question is, however he, we can help him figure it out. Other people were impatient. They were not willing to spend that time. Some of them, others were, but over the course of his recovery, that would change. He would have more facility to ask more well-structured sentences. I mean, clearly by the end, he was having conversations all the time. And he was, you know, talking. His old personality resurfaced of his, you know, he would ask a question and I would spend 20, 30 minutes explaining whatever. And then he'd go back and he'd say, yeah, but what about this? You know, and he'd like ask the same question as if he didn't. So his patience, his patience for listening was the same as when before his stroke, he didn't have a lot of patience for listening. For the audience, how would you rate his communication the first, let's say, three months post-stroke, zero to 10, and then a few months prior to him passing? So let's say at the beginning, we were at, you know, maybe plus one mm -hmm. communication. So three months later, I'd say it was like plus five and a half, six. And then before he died, he was able to communicate very well. Very functional. Very functional with his speech and his still was trying to find answers to yeah. pieces mm -hmm. of his life that he had forgotten. 
So sure. questions we all are. keep coming up. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. So so let me ask it let me ask you a question as as the layperson on the call here, Jerry and, and, and Henry, what percentage of patients with that level of aphasia actually make a recovery back to eighty or hundred percent of where they were prior to the stroke? That's a Henry question. Is that common? I can relate it back to not only speech, but cognition or hand or foot. That's a really good uh, recovery, number one. You know, imagine having zero hand function and then three years later having hand function, right? That's tough. There are many factors involved, Pete, one of which is going to be internal factors such as motivation. Clearly, he had the motivation. That's, that's the number one factor, whether it's weight loss, drug addiction, or motor recovery, right? Absolutely. 100% agree. Obviously, having the right network around you is super, super critical. And they had Jerry. I would, I guess the I'm a little bummed out about the speech language pathologist not recommending basic adaptive equipment strategies and tools and technology. In 2012, those did exist. So that's a little unfortunate. Those two are the major factors. And of course, the cortical impairment itself, the, the size of the lesion, that's obviously going to be a factor as well. If you say in general that you're going to be within functional limits, meaning I can live functionally, with that impaired limb, that's really good. So say the same thing for aphasia. That's really good. I don't think that's a majority, Pete, because of number one and number two, intrinsic motivation and then the fit and the network. So Jerry and, and her father obviously checked the boxes and that's why he did so well. That's my opinion. Yeah. I would say that there's also a piece of the puzzle might be how quickly one gets to, you know, medical attention. Yeah. hundred percent. Sure. And so he got there really fast. I mean, within seven minutes, he was at the hospital. And wow. within 15 minutes, he had gotten the, to the, the stroke drug, you know, the, the clot buster. So that was really fast. Yes. And people listening, I guarantee you, and, and guests we've had on, we've had stories where they were sitting in the ER for f- over four hours. Right. And every hour, their limb got weaker and weaker. They're watching themselves continue to deteriorate. Right. That's how bad it was. So this was like amazing. And that's all due to Estelle, his girlfriend, being there while it was happening, you know. So there's that. I mean, I had a cousin who lay in her house for, I think, eight hours until her husband came home. And she was completely, you know, her mind was there. Yeah. I mean, completely there. But talking, physical ability to do anything. But I was amazed at her. I'll, I'll yeah. leave you with this and Pete, Pete can wrap it up. Um, I had a patient not too long ago talk about a lesson for all of us. You know, it's the boy who cried wolf. If you joke around too much, it may bite you in the butt. And what happened was uh, this younger gentleman suffered a stroke. He was actually, uh, he liked to sleep naked. He was on the floor because he couldn't walk. He got out of bed and realized, gee, my left leg's not working, collapsed. He, after a couple hours, he woke up, he fell asleep again, woke up, realized it wasn't a bad dream, crawled to his cell phone to tell his one buddy, hey, listen, I'm naked, I'm on my floor, and I think I suffered a stroke, come over here. And the buddy laughed at him and said, nice one, and hung up on him. So then he fell asleep again, woke up two hours later and said, Dude, I'm telling you the truth. I need help. And the buddy laughed again <laughs> and hung up, said, stop fooling around because this guy was a constant joker. And it wasn't until almost 24 hours later, his girlfriend found him. Yeah. And if he would have gotten that attention. So take home message, stop joking around so much in case you have that problem happen to you. 
but he's doing great now. Thankfully, he got some great rehab. He's making some wonderful progress, but those stories do exist. Yeah. Well, I'm amazed. I mean, I've, I've done a couple of podcasts, one with, with a guy in Australia who had three brain, um, maybe, you know, Bill, uh, Gassiamis. Um, yeah, I've listened to his podcast. Fantastic. He was in that state. He couldn't talk. He couldn't. And now he's so articulate. He's so there, you know, and so that, and he's young and a, a young person, you know, and there's a lot of young people who apparently are having this situation in their lives. You're absolutely right. I think we, we find more and more younger stroke victims. And you know, the big, the big takeaways for me on this call are no joking. Number <laughs> two, up. sitting is the new smoking. Stand up. <laughs> Stand up. And the third one, Jerry, I think there's a couple of really key points when I first met you. And now that we've had you on the show that really resonate. Number one is you started right off by saying how motivated your father was at, even at 84 years old to get through this. I think that is just remarkable because a lot of people at 84 are like, I'm checked out. I'm too tired. I have no desire to get out of bed and fix this. And understandably, right? You're just, if you've got renal issues and, and other cardiac issues going on, physical therapy is just exhausting. And the mental aspect, which I don't think a lot of people realize, the conversations you had with your dad, a 30-minute conversation is like running a marathon. It took so much out of him. I mean, he worked so hard at every part of the process, right? You just want to shut down at that point and then to stay engaged. So I think the motivation he had, as Henry described, Henry described that intrinsic motivation is so important. But also the fact that you and your sister, particularly initially, were very patient and recognized when other people weren't patient. I find it really inspiring in the fact that three to four years later, he was, was more of himself yeah, again. that was his goal. Is just... Yeah, it's just amazing. I mean, I think that it, that had it not been for the end-stage renal failure, he would have been, you know, great, good to go. You know, walking, going out with his friends again, having people have, but the but the other health issues, you know, really took over and took over his. A previous issue got him. Yeah, it was it wasn't the stroke? It wasn't the stroke, which was amazing. Well, Jerry, would you mind holding up your book cover in front of the camera so everybody <laughs> can see it? I think they, they might be able to, but why don't you hold it up and there, there you go. There, there it is. perfect. Right there. <laughs> there it is. Right. Stroke Dialogues, Conversations with Dad. What a great what a great name for a book. And the fact that there's 13 stories of discovery, I think, and you described learning. There's more than that. The 13 were the first, the first couple, but uh, there's more. There's actually, you know, and it goes on. And and I wanted to leave your people with, with this one one line, you know, when I was teaching him the letters, when we were going through the letters, so we got to the P's. Maybe I, I did this with you the last time. I can't remember. But I came up with a like a little tongue twister for him to, to work on his P's. And it's like, when you're positive and patient, when you are persistent and practice, full recovery is possible and anything is possible. And I made him think about that because it touched on so many aspects of thought and motivation and emotion. And, you know, it was like a, a constant struggle to get him to fight his depression, fight his emotional attitude toward life, now life as a stroke survivor, you know. And so I thought I came up with that as being something that just would, you know, contradict all the negativity. 
when Pete asked, gee, how many people get a recovery like this? There's another example of how you're different and why he did so well. You are the hero behind your dad's recovery, right? I know there's other people involved, but not everyone has that strong support system that's going to constantly stimulate the recovery process. And I've only known you for less than an hour, and I can already guarantee you that you're checking all the boxes that I would want if I suffered a stroke to have someone in my life like you, Jerry. And if I had a book, Conversations with Dad would probably be rated R, so I wouldn't be able to promote it. Although I love not my dad an R-rated right? book. No, not R-rated. <laughs> right, right. Well, Jerry, I, I, I'm very grateful you joined us Thanks. on the show. And, and you know, my, my early exposure to the stroke world, as Harry Henry aptly described and summarized, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at some of the stories we hear from survivors when they wake up and that caregiver's next to them. And they're like, we got this. And then they stay with them, right? So important. Uh, and the last thing is you, you mentioned at the beginning of the program, you like the no plateau name. And that's the big takeaway. If you're listening to this, and you suffered a stroke, and you're sitting there with your, have your caregiver pay attention to this because you can get better. It takes work, but sometimes the work is the win for the day. Just doing the therapy for the day is the win. And then if you do that for a month or two months, those little progress start to happen. And it's, it's a big commitment, but thank you so much, Jerry. Oh, you're welcome. It's like such a pleasure. And it's so, it's so refreshing to find people that are so committed to the recovery process, whether it's through the products or you're just, you know, all the other things that you're doing to support that and to support the caregivers and the uh, stroke survivors. So kudos to the company and kudos to you guys, you know, being well, thanks. so committed, c- committed. Yeah. It makes it easy when we can share stories like this. Jerry, appreciate it. All right. That's another episode. Stay tuned for more of the No Plateau podcast. And thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in to the No Plateau podcast. Please make sure to like and subscribe to stay up to date on more stroke and brain injury recovery stories. The No Plateau podcast is intended to give you an insight into stroke and brain injury survivors' journeys. Any opinions given on this podcast are strictly the individual's and we do not suggest that you necessarily hold the same viewpoints as anyone on this podcast. This podcast is intended to supplement stroke and brain injury survivors' recovery journey. Therefore, all content affiliated with this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Reliance on any information provided by the No Plateau podcast is solely at your own risk. 